0: Hello! Welcome to Episode 7 of The War Pod, the official podcast of the Remote Warfare Programme, a London-based research initiative focusing on remote warfare, the trend where states support local and regional forces on the front lines rather than deploying large numbers of their own troops. The Remote Warfare Programme is part of the Oxford Research Group, a peace and security think tank. I'm Abigail Watson, and in this episode, I'll be joined by my colleague Megan and Uweka Franca from ECFR to discuss drones and the future of technology in conflict. So... Ulrika, we started working together when the debate around remote warfare was dominated by drones and this idea that they could revolutionise war. Could you briefly tell me a bit, I know this is also your PhD <laughs> question, so briefly is the, the strong word here. <laughs> um, could you briefly highlight how you approach this topic and what, what side of the debate you came down on, this idea that it could be the new big thing in, in war?
1: Yeah, um, so first of all, thanks for having me. So yeah, as you say, this kind of question of whether drones revolutionized warfare was indeed the kind of main question of my PhD. So there are many elements to consider it. But to just kind of break it down or to kind of share some of the results of my study... Um, So I looked at how certain states, armed forces of states, use drones in military operations. I looked at how Germany, the United Kingdom, and the United States use drones, military drones, and um, I have some idea of of what France is up to. Um, And so a few things to kind of highlight. Um, I'd say that from a military point of view, um, I think the general debate has actually been looking at the wrong thing, namely that the general debate has very much been focused on armed drones used by, especially the United States, and especially the CIA, for targeted killings outside of uh, official conflict zones, which I agree is very interesting, also highly controversial, certainly something to discuss. But from a military point of view, I would argue that the smaller surveillance drones are actually more revolutionary, if you like, because what they allow is really to have 24 seven surveillance, monitoring, intelligence um, uh, collection up in the air. And this is a capability we didn't have before. And for me, this is kind of one one way to define revolutionary change is to say, okay, is there something completely new? And I'd said this level of surveillance is something that is new from a military point of view. So that would be the kind of first thing to note, and I think here it's important to note how much more countries have these small surveillance drones compared to like the the bigger armed drones, right? I mean, when you look at the world, you have about you know somewhere between ninety and hundred countries that have some type of military drone, but the large large majority of those are unarmed and are surveillance drones. So, so that's why this is kind of important. Um, and another element to mention here is that this kind of surveillance capability is also now available at l- much lower hierarchical levels. And that's something I found quite interesting, right? Because, you know, of course, at the very high level, at the commander level, et cetera, you. You know, commanders in, in recent wars had a relatively good idea of what was going on, but the the soldiers on the ground not necessarily so much. Mm-hmm. And these smaller surveillance drones now allow lower level soldiers basically to have a better what we call battle space awareness to know what's going on over the next hill, over the next compound wall in Afghanistan. That was a big one, and just have a better better idea. And so, I'd say, and this is kind of for me the the second big, if you want to call it, revolutionary point of view. Or revolutionary change that drones caused, that for the soldier, something has changed. Um, Soldiers have a better battle space awareness, know what is going on, have a different, yeah, a different relationship really to combat. Um, And and I found that 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 was really interesting. And this, of course, and now we're kind of coming full circle back to the, the armed drones, this, of course, also applies to those soldiers that. That fly these bigger, quite often armed drones from very far away. So the typical, what's been called cubicle warriors, the people that sit at Creech Air Force Base um, in the US and Nevada, for instance, and fly drones all the way, uh, yeah, operate drones all the way in, in Afghanistan or in Iraq. They also have a very different approach to warfare. And so I'd say for me, you know, kind of putting this really briefly, for me, these kind of two elements of this, the, the availability of 24 7 surveillance and this new Way that soldiers experience warfare. These were the two kind of findings I found most interesting, and they aren't necessarily linked to the targeted killing bit, which of course is very important.
2: Incredibly interesting. And then I guess you mentioned the focus on the UK and France as examples of EU countries that have drones, but of course there are other European countries that are also continuing to develop their own drone capabilities. I'm curious about what are the key developments in that space. Um, So who has drones and who doesn't, and does it matter which European partners have drones and their capabilities?
1: Yeah, I mean, a lot of European countries actually have drones, and a lot of it, a lot of it goes actually back quite a long time. So we tend to think of drones as a relatively new military technology, but it it really isn't. So there have always already been drones in like the Vietnam War and in Kosovo in the nineties. Um, so so we've had drones, military drones, before. Now, ever since I, I put the 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 moment around the year two thousand, ever since the year two thousand, we've had. M- Technological advantage has made drones kind of better, better, easier to to use, um, easier to build, etc. So more and more countries have acquired drones since around the year two thousand. Um, so now in Europe, um, I don't quite have the full list of all EU countries in front of me, but I, I'd say the large majority, if not all, the countries in Europe have some kind of drone capability. Yeah. But again, here the difference is between what type um, and as it is often the case within Europe, the kind of bigger, more military advanced countries have a wider range of drones, uh, going all the way from, for instance, the Black Hornet, which was a system that the Brits used to um, deploy That is a very small surveillance drone. It takes off the the palm of your hand. So it's a little helicopter that totally looks like a a toy helicopter, but it was actually quite useful in Afghanistan. Um, and this range goes all the way to the, the reaper type or the reaper drones um, that, that are bigger and armed, that are used by um, uh, France and Italy that use kind of predator and reaper type, type drones. So you have a full range in, in Europe, uh, I'd say. Does it make a difference? I mean, it depends on, on whether these countries want to work together. Um, generally in Europe quite often when there are military operations done by European countries uh, equipment tends to be lacking so um, it, there's that but um, so far we haven't had any major situation where where it, it massively measured that one country had drones and the other, other didn't but um, yeah so all over Europe countries do have drones and, the, and Germany, Germany has I think five or six, or at this point even seven different types, Um, France, you mentioned Italy, uh, et cetera, they all all employ military drones one way or another.
2: Mm -hmm. Great. And then I have a question about, so on the 30th of September, um, Al-Shabaab attacked an American base in Somalia, which I'm sure you've been working quite a lot on, um, where the Americans trained members of the SNA but also apparently deployed drones against armed groups. Um, And I'm curious what you think that says about the risk of blowback from those targeted by drones um, when we go to remote
1: war. Yeah, I mean that's been a big discussion, right? Whether it's actually counterproductive to to use drones, and here we're really in this territory of of targeted killings of using drones yeah. outside official battle spaces, um, and and very famously we had American commanders that said, you know, for every insurgent or every person we kill by drone, we create you know a few a few more, and so yeah, it's this yeah. kind of reinforcing circle. Um, I find this quite hard to generalize because here it really isn't about the technology as such, but about the tactic. Yeah, and In I some agree. cases, this can totally be true, but then it could also be true if you were bombing with any other kind of means. Yeah. Um, and in other cases, it may not be. In other cases, it it is a legitimate military tactic, these kind of um, target killings or also decapitation strikes. This can totally work, and it doesn't always mean that there's going to be a blowback. So I, I would be very careful to kind of generalize over... I'm saying that this technology is gonna lead to that kind of blowback. What needs what needs to blowback is the way you use it. Mm-hmm. And that there's that this is a an, an issue in several areas around the world we've definitely seen, yeah. Absolutely.
0: And I think that's been something that's really dominated the debate over the the last few years. But I, I think what seems to have mobilized opinion recently is moving beyond Europe. The use of drones by so-called rogue states or non-state actors. Yeah. You saw that I think with Gatwick over Christ- during the Christmas period at the end of last year and then also more recently the fact that drones were used to target Saudi oil facilities with quite a low tech being able to wipe out I think it was about 5% of the global oil pre- Global. Yeah, Yeah. I, I, I guess I'm, I'm interested to, to hear your take on how much these developments could be revolutionary or could, could be at worth all the, the concern that
1: they're generating. Yeah, I think this is a really interesting question. I think the non-state actor use of drones is fascinating. So, first one point. What's been really interesting to me is that, as I said, drones have been around for quite a long time, but they were in exclusively military technology for decades, right? Yeah. And even in the early 2000s, exclusively military. And then at one point, the civilian use and commercial use took off. And now every one of us can buy drones that are actually like very, very good um, from Amazon. And I have a drone at home and like lots of people, <laughs> lots of people do. And then what happened is that these drones kind of came back to the battlefield um, in by the use of non-state actors. So you had non-state actors that, you know, at first pretty much bought these drones of, by Amazon yeah, and, yeah, and yeah. then used them um, for their own, yeah, military operations, if you like. And now drones, uh, non-state actors are also uh, producing and making and building their own their own drones. So that's kind of an interesting development. I think the use of drones by non-state actor is potentially revolutionary, at least, like, very important because drones give non-state actors something that they didn't have before, and that's an airborne capability. Yeah. You have, you know, incredibly well-equipped non-state actors, but so far, no non-state actors had had an air force, right? Mm, yeah. Now they kind of do. I mean, sure, you know, a drone isn't quite the same as, as a, as a big-man plane, but now mm-hmm. non-state actors have airborne capability, and that's super useful. That's useful for a number of things, and we've really seen with with ISIS, um, how they progressed very quickly through different stages. So they started with using drones for propaganda videos, just kind of putting propaganda videos on YouTube. Then they went and used drones to well, spy on on enemy bases, so basically classic intelligence surveillance reconnaissance. Then they started booby-trapping these drones, um, flying them into a a base or near soldiers and exploding them. And then they started to arm these drones, being able to kind of uh, drop grenades from these drones and reutilize them. And this, you know, within a really short time span. Um, So this is a really important capability now for for these actors, and we've seen this all over, all over the Middle East. We've seen this in Ukraine. We've seen this in a number of of, um, places. In a way, this wasn't super surprising. I mean, this is the interesting bit, right? You know, drone research, such as as you and I, we've been, you know, looking at these things, and we've been, I assume, you know, you've also been thinking like, hmm,
0: You know, there's a certain danger there.
1: And I remember just, I'm not quite sure when it was, I think it was 2013 or even 2009, there's this great picture um, where you see Angela Merkel, the German Chancellor, sitting on a panel with a bunch of other people, including the former German defense minister. And in front of them, you have a a drone flying. And Merkel kind of laughs, the defense minister looks a bit like annoyed. (laughs) There was a whole debate about drones at this point in Germany. Um, but no one really reacts. And this was a, a panel discussion where one of the opposition parties, the pirate party, flew a drone next to the panel to kind of protest US drone, uh, sorry, German drone policy. The thing is, I would argue that this if the same thing were happening today, you have a panel with, you know, VIP politicians and, and, and an unknown drone arrives, yeah, I think there would be, a yeah, be pandemonium. It. Yeah, It yeah. <laughs> would be panic, and rightly so. But at this point, no one realized that this could actually be a threat. I mean, it wasn't. It was a PR stunt, but it could have been a threat. And so, I think this shows how this how this has sh- has changed, um, and to some extent, and quite honestly, I think we're going to see way more non-state drone use. We're going to see, unfortunately, terrorist attacks via drones, be it um, cases of such as the attempted allegedly attempted assassination attempt of, of the Venezuelan President Maduro um, or you know disruptions of airport operations such as Gatwick or even attacks against airliners, which is something I'm super terrified of, I think we're going to see that more. Yeah, This is a capability that, that's actually, yeah, unfortunately, really useful for, for non-selectors. It's really interesting as well, I guess, because there's this a big case in Denmark, which I'm sure you
2: know more about than I do, where two men have been charged of sending drones to ISIS or trying to do that, which is the first time that they're trying to that accuse someone and charge someone with sending drones instead of funding, which is, again, quite an interesting uh, contrast. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I guess moving beyond drones a little bit to your work on artificial intelligence, can you briefly really explain what you've been looking at and why you think it's important that um, Europe develops its own perspective on AI?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so I got to the whole AI bit, I think actually through drones and through autonomy, because of course we have the drones, a lot of them are remotely piloted or pre-programmed, but increasingly they're automated or if you like autonomous, there's a bit, big debate around this term, um, and in order to make systems, be it drones or anything else, autonomous, you need some level of, of AI, of artificial intelligence, of machine learning, that kind of stuff. So that's kind of my, my approach to it. And since then, I've been looking at artificial intelligence in warfare more broadly, going beyond the, the autonomy bit, because actually, as we all know, AI could revolutionize and change everything, and hence it can also um, change military operations and military systems, and not just, you know, armed systems, but also things like military logistics, that kind of things. Um, and I'm really interested in, in what's happening in this space. And specifically, I'm really interested in what's happening in Europe, simply because there are very few people looking at Europe. I mean, this is really, yeah. I find this very annoying how everyone is looking at what the, what the U.S. is up to and what China is up to. And Europe, home to some 500 million people, <laughs> kind of important world region, Um uh, and also militarily, actually, not that you know insignificant, and very few people look at that. So I've been kind of looking in, in the space of of what European countries are up to with regard to using AI in warfare, and I've branched out somewhat, um, going even broader, looking at artificial intelligence and the approach to artificial intelligence in different European countries. Um, even beyond the military ground. So, just you know, what do all these new AI and national strategies that a lot of European countries are putting out? What are they saying? Are there um, pensions? Are there differences? Where can Europe work together? And where should Europe? Uh, how should Europe basically place itself in this in this new development? Um, and that's kind of ongoing work that I find quite fascinating. Mm-hmm. Sounds incredibly interesting.
0: Um, I. Get- I guess maybe this is a bit tangential, but it's something that we've spoken to a few former officials about, including Larry Lewis, who spoke about it on the podcast with you and Liam, didn't yeah, they? Absolutely. This idea that we also focus on the detrimental impact of AI, that it, it could it could lead to more devastating wars. But he, his argument is that maybe there's a space for AI to be sort of more humanizing to get rid of some of the horrors of wars certainly his angle which he, he comes from a civilian protection background he's often argued that maybe advances in i can ai can help in targeting and help reduce civilian casualties mm-hmm. what what is your take on that what do you do you
1: think it's all bad <laughs> no i don't think it's all bad i think we don't know yet and I realize it is an incredibly un- unsatisfactory um, answer, but I think this is really <laughs> important. Because what's happening at the moment is that we have all these new, I don't even want to say this new tech, but these new promises of new tech. Right? Yeah. And we can absolutely imagine a lot of AI being used for, sorry, a lot. Um, we can imagine AI being used for a lot of different military systems and AI-enabled military technologies. At this point, however, we're at the very beginning and we don't really know yet which technologies will be those that will be used in the military realm um, over others. And there are different options, right? I mean, drone swarms is one that I find really interesting, not just because it's drones, but also because it's kind of quite clear how this can be a new military capability. Um, AI-enabled cyber warfare is something I Right. very scary but you know this is this is definitely um, something but there are lots of other possible AI enabled military technologies so we don't quite know yet what will be on future battlefields. And then, and this is really important, we also don't know yet how they will be used. Yeah. Because the kind of theory of, of revolutions in military affairs is always that it's not just about the new technology, it's also about how you use it. Yeah, so there yeah, are basically yeah. two levels of uncertainty here where we don't quite know what the technology is going to look like, and we don't know how it's going to be used or how it could be used. But then we try to kind of predict something that comes out of this. And this yeah. is what makes it so, so tricky. So I think, you know he's he's right in so far as ai can enable more um, efficient more precise and just generally better warfare but it can also you know have you know, terrible implications and there's always this debate about you know making weapons better doesn't necessarily mean you know less war or less mm, victims yeah, yeah. or hopefully it means less civilian casualties but but the kind of repercussions well all of this I find very tricky to know and we're very much in the kind of speculation area here Yeah,
0: and I guess in, it also speaks to a secondary issue which is um, something that we have seen at times in the military and UK government planning that you see a problem and new technology can fix it and so Unless you unless you have a clear problem set where you, you say AI can address it in this way, just saying more technology will improve our effectiveness in the future mm-hmm. is not a good strategy.
1: And as you say, there's also the question of what will the next problem be, right? Yeah. I mean, think about drones. Um, as I said, so around the year 2000, drones were taking off. Haha, <laughs> bad pun. Um, but, you know, around the year 2000, there really was in my thesis I say the stars aligned for drones Um, and one bit of it was purely technological and that would have basically happened you know without anything else because here we're really talking about the same technology that made smartphones you know possible and ever better these also help with drones but at the same time the stars also aligned because of you know the the war on terror and all of these wars following 11 So there was a real need for a very specific capability in especially the US military and then also elsewhere. If that hadn't, ha- hadn't happened, maybe the kind of technology that, again, came together at this time would have been put together differently and f- would have been used differently. And so what you describe is, is, is very much the same thing. Like, What are the new... The new gaps and the new um, risks and the new capabilities that we're gonna need in the in the future, and how will AI be used to fill this? Mm-hmm. This will be a part of the the equation. And once again, this is very difficult to predict because it just depends on yeah the future or well, the future in general and like <laughs> political future and future warfare.
2: Yeah. Have you seen anything coming together that makes you think that AI might be closer? When do you think that AI will be? a part of the way we conduct
1: warfare on a more regular basis. I mean, it already is. and This comes back to this terrible question of what AI is anyway, right? I mean, you know, you can spend hours on this. But so just, I've just come back from from Helsinki actually where there was a, was a conference on the EDF, the European Defence Fund. And they had a a whole day, a whole panel on artificial intelligence Mm -hmm. in warfare. And one of the French representatives, um, representatives that was on this panel, he said, I mean, we're talking about future capabilities, sure, but also the next Rafale model will have some elements of AI because they're mm-hmm. using AI in effective maintenance. I mean, this is, this is AI in warfare, if you like, mm-hmm. but it's not quite the, the Terminator that a lot of people are imagining. <laughs> so basically, my answer is, to some extent, it's already there. You can definitely already, already see it. Um, but it's it, and Yeah, but we're not quite yet at the kind of fully AI-enabled, let's say, autonomy or, mm-hmm. or AI-enabled um, cyber warfare, but with every day we're basically getting closer to it and there are already technological mm-hmm. element, elements in these weapons that are AI-enabled. Mm-hmm.
2: And then you did an excellent interview for our website a while ago that you can, all the listeners can find on our website, uh, in which you spoke about the portrayals of drones in science fiction. I'm curious. Yes. <laughs> the Terminator has already come yeah. up. <laughs> so what can the study
1: of the portrayal of drones and sci-fi tell us about their use in reality? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I mean, as a lot of people who work in this kind of realm, I'm a big science fiction fan and I find it very interesting <laughs> to kind of read science fiction and, and see what's what's portrayed there. Um so first of all, of course, it's important not to think of sci-fi as kind of Attempts to accurately portray the future. That's what the majority of sci-fi authors isn't trying to do. Um, so we shouldn't kind of go too far and say like, okay, this isn't science fiction, so this is what we're gonna see. But I think some, you know, sci-fi portrayals of drones give us some ideas of where it could go. Um, so I've been reading this, this novel called Drone Land, um, where basically, you know, you have drones for almost everything. Um, you know, surveillance drones, police drones, paparazzi drones, delivery drones, that kind of thing. So a future where the skies filled with drones. And this is one possibility. This could happen. Um at the moment they're kind of legal hurdles mainly, some technological but mainly legal. But this is a possibility. So it's kind of good to read about this and, and see how these authors are thinking through the, the challenges that may come out of this. Um but also I think that science fiction can actually be a great tool of communication. So sci-fi has already influenced all of our ideas of the future of war and the future of technology, and in a way, it's a bit um, problematic. Maybe that so much portrayal of AI in in sci-fi is negative, right? The Terminator, it's hail. It's like you know that kind of um, that kind of thing. Um, but there are also ways of using sci-fi to communicate. You know. Positive um, developments. Um, uh, I love the ENM Banks Culture series, where you have a lot of, you know, positive examples of of how a future with AI could look like. Um, and of course, you know, the kind of prime example of this is uh, Peter W. Singer and August Cole's uh, Ghost Fleet, which is a yeah sci-fi speculative f- uh, fiction novel written by an author and an expert on you know, the future of warfare and policy, etc. And they sat down together and and wrote a sci-fi novel about the future of war kind of using the tech that we have at the moment, that we are developing, and that we can imagine. And this was actually a great tool of communicating how the future could look like. So, yeah, we should all be reading more sci-fi. We should think more about uh, science fiction and then maybe use other references than the Terminator, even though I realize I totally <laughs> used the Terminator reference. and totally <laughs>
2: That sounds fascinating. We should we read some more sci fi books? Yeah, yeah. In the office.
0: I have so many recommendations.
2: <laughs> good. We'll put them all on the website. Yeah, <laughs> a reading list.
0: That isn't really the policy recommendation that I thought was going to come out of this oh, podcast. You know. <laughs> but I, I feel like that makes it all the more interesting and maybe a good place to end. I think so. Thank you very much for your time. It was an incredibly interesting discussion. My pleasure. Thank you for having
1: me.
2: Absolutely. And thank you to all our listeners for tuning in as well. We hope you enjoyed the discussion as much as we did. For those of you who want to read more in depth about the topics we've covered, we put links to any research or publications that we've mentioned in the episode's notes. Um, If you want to stay up to date with the Remote Warfare program, you can can subscribe to our newsletter by clicking on the button at the top of the page. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our handles are at orginfo and at remote underscore warfare. And you can listen to all previous episodes of our podcast free of charge by following the link at the top of the page. Thank you very much. Thank you.
0: Bye (laughs) bye.